Hello fellow survivors and welcome to another episode of At the End of the Line. I'm your host and amateur eschatologist Richard Oliver. In the last episode I told you about our arrival in Longshadow, the town that was destroyed before our very eyes by the Honourable Society of Worthwhile Preservation. At first they just seemed to be some art snobs who destroyed art to stop the central government authority from rescuing it, and in the Honourable Society's opinion, wasting their resources. But it turned out to be far worse than that. They applied the same rules to people, killing those they deemed not worth saving. Vask and I had fallen into their clutches, and while they had long ago deemed Vasca far too valuable to society to harm, they weren't too sure about me. In the vaguest possible sense, the Honourable Society saved what they deemed to be beautiful or useful. Anything else, they destroyed. Their philosophy being, it simply wasn't possible to save everything and everyone, so difficult choices had to be made. At the end of the last episode, Jessica, seemingly the founder of the Honourable Society, was preparing to ask me some difficult questions. Jessica took a gleaming pen from her clipboard and started asking me the questions. I had expected a combination of questions about my skills and qualifications, as well as deep, probing philosophical questions, something that would shine a light on my soul and show my worth. But it was none of that. It was what you would call biographical information mainly, a lot of the questions just asking for clarity on a few issues. When Jessica said that we were done and returned the pen to the clipboard, I couldn't help but object. What sort of questions were those? Jessica informed me that yes, they do have a complex system for assessing the worth of a person. And while she was rather circumspect as to the specifics, she did say I had done most of the work for them. Your podcast, Richard, she said. I'd say 95% of what we needed was contained within that. That was not good. My mind quickly scanned through my podcast and all the instances of cowardice, laziness, incompetence, all the times I had needed someone else to save me, the times I confessed to having a drinking problem and worse things. I talked about my life, my views, my capabilities. I had made this really easy for them. When I started this podcast in Locke, I had considered showing myself in a more positive light, but I decided against it, preferring a more honest portrayal. I see now that had been a mistake. Despite the danger I was in, I began rewriting each episode, creating some new hero, part dashing secret agent, part art critic, someone that satisfied the honourable society. Jessica excused herself while the decision was made. I already knew the outcome. After all, if they let me live, they had pretty weak criteria. I panicked as I tried to work out some escape plan utilising only the extensive collection of magazines that the waiting room contained, and couldn't help but think a person more likely to pass the Honourable Society's tests would have an easier time executing their escape. After an insultingly short time spent debating with her colleagues, Jessica returned, this time without a clipboard, but with another crew member, and he had brought a gun. This new person was every bit as attractive as the others, but in a slightly different way. I didn't doubt that he'd be quite capable of punching holes through brick walls. It's not good news, I'm afraid, was all Jessica said. I took a deep breath as I tried to marshal my thoughts and feelings. I had decided some time ago that in such a scenario I would not opt for the quiet dignity and stiff upper lip which I am to understand was once one of the defining traits of the English and instead would cause something of a scene. Normally, the next step would happen quite quickly, said Jessica. 
We have a very gentle procedure. No pain. My colleague Mason here will take care of it. There was something in her tone and the way she said normally, which interrupted the tantrum I was building up inside me. Normally, that's what would happen. Is this not normal? I asked. And Jessica confirmed that yes, indeed, things weren't going to happen the normal way. Or they didn't have to. Jessica asked me to follow her and we left the comfortable waiting room and walked through well-lit, spotlessly clean corridors, occasionally passing stunningly attractive people who were busily going about their work. Mason was always just a step behind us. Well, behind me specifically. I imagine he was present to deal with me if I got... difficult. Are all of your crew this good looking? I asked Jessica. Everyone notices that, she said. We try and protect an image of beauty at all times. It seemed peculiar to me that it was only attractive people who signed up for the Honourable Society, but Jessica quickly disavowed me of that notion. No, we make them beautiful if needs be, she said. Most people just need a few little adjustments, some advanced cosmetic surgery, and there you go. Beautiful. Mason here is a prime example. He didn't always look like that, you know. I glanced back at Mason, who nodded. Jessica said that the superficial beauty they had was only a finishing touch of class that kept the Honourable Society very much on brand. We stuck outside the door and walked with the text, Experimental Testing. Jessica turned to me and looked very serious. Richard, inside this room is something that will give your life meaning. In my head I added, that would also perhaps save my life. Jessica opened the door to a large room with only a handful of men and women working quietly. The room was filled with maps, charts and diagrams. All were expertly framed and positioned, and a dozen or so computers were seemingly running different simulations. This is potentially a big step forward for us, Richard, said Jessica, smiling. All the maps, charts and diagrams were of England. Jessica stepped into the room and spun round, extending her arms, taking in the glory of the room. You can help us destroy England, she said. It's time for this episode's instalment of Who's On Board? Today we have the trained psychiatrist, Dr Bernadette Juncker. Good afternoon, Dr Juncker. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Richard. Long-time listener, first-time contributor. You're a fan of the show? Yes, I listen whenever I can. Your previous shows as well. Oh, Dr. Younger, I'm touched. I had no idea. You never mentioned this in any of our sessions. That would be inappropriate, Richard. I see. So, let's start. Um, What are your duties on board? I am responsible for the psychological well-being of everyone on board, as well as working with some of the communities we meet on our journey. I also carry out psychological research when I have time. A lot of the guests on the show have mentioned how the apocalypse added new dimensions to their work. Is this true of you? Yes, there are a lot of fascinating psychological conditions that have been created by the apocalypse and aftermath. Far more interesting than the -the run-of-the-mill conditions I used to treat. Bearing in mind patient confidentiality, could you tell us about some of these conditions? Hmm. Hmm. Well... One that I find particularly interesting is Survival Indestructibility Syndrome. And this is? Oh, it's a false belief in your own indestructibility. You see, many people on board have survived lots of disasters and attacks 
and at some point a small number of people might believe they are protected by fate, that they are destined to live long healthy lives. And how would you treat this? I, I, I beg your pardon? The treatment. Psychoanalysis. Medication. Um, I don't treat that as such. So... Well, it's a highly beneficial condition to suffer from. Won't it make people take more risks if they believe they're immortal? Indestructible, not immortal. And yes, it does. But travelling on this train is very risky. Wouldn't you say, Richard? Yes, very. It would be entirely rational for a person to not want to continue being on board. SIS, Survival Indestructibility Syndrome, makes it easier for them to actually be on board. Okay, well, what about the communities we've met along the way? Oh yes, I've come across some fascinating conditions. One of the more interesting things is how communities that are separated by thousands of miles and have no way to communicate often have the same problems. I mean, if I had a dollar for every town that I've come across that worships an atom bomb, I'd have $213. And do you treat this problem? Not always. You're probably imagining a quite brutal society, very repressive, lots of bizarre rituals and rules, maybe even a few human sacrifices. But there are as many modern, liberal, forward-thinking atom bomb worshipping societies with women clergy, equal rights, and a focus on being a kind neighbour rather than prescriptive rules. But their religion is based on, well, it's not real. Richard, I see it as being no more ridiculous than any number of religions. So you don't treat survivor indestructibility syndrome? SIS. You don't treat SIS. You won't always treat someone for worshipping an atom bomb. When do you treat someone? I treat many things. Doppelganger roulette, post-apocalypse hyperactive arts crafting disorder, Donkey Shot syndrome, an array of new and intriguing problems. And these problems are detrimental to people? Absolutely. You have to remember, Richard, therapy is to help people. Help them live their lives. Back in the pre-apocalypse days, we tried to help people with their problems. People like us, those in England, France and so on, would have OCD and depression and we helped them with that. Now the world is very different and just surviving is a good start, so we help people to survive. So therapy has fundamentally changed? Yes, just like everything else. Thank you for your time, Dr. Juncker. I must have fainted. I woke a little later on a fantastically comfortable chaise long with amazing upholstery. Jessica looked down on me with a concerned look, which I found rather ironic, as only a little while ago she was discussing my death. Someone had gotten me some tea, and in a few minutes I was feeling more myself. You're going to destroy England? I asked Jessica, the cup gently rattling in my shaking hands. In truth, we haven't decided yet, said Jessica. That's where you come in. Jessica began to explain to me the time-consuming process they went through when they decided whether to destroy something or indeed someone. I had assumed it was all just their personal taste. 
was it a good enough painting? And yes, their own judgments played a part, but a lot of it was mathematics. Values were given to various aspects of the piece of art in question and to the difficulty in saving it. And all this was put into a computer and it spat out an answer. The debate that went on between the Honourable Society was all about the values given. No person decided the ultimate outcome. Recently though, not long after they left Russia, Jessica had begun to think on a larger scale. The Central Government Authority was on the verge of making England its new priority, and soon money, time and resources would be lavished on this little island. What if they could cover the whole country and its entire population and all the art and everything else in it with one equation? and determine the fate of the whole country. It will be a lot quicker if nothing else. You can't do it, I said. I don't mean you shouldn't. I mean, you shouldn't. But you can't possibly have the weapons to make such a thing possible. I mean, well done, you blew up one small town, but... Jessica raised one eyebrow and smiled. I assure you, Richard, what is holding us back is not our lack of capability. And in that moment, I believe that the Honourable Society could do it. What was holding them back was a lack of information. Jessica was eager to explain they weren't some trigger-happy lunatics looking for an excuse to play with their toys and wipe out an entire country. No, they trusted the system. But for that system to work, they needed to know the state of things in the country. And in their opinion, I was the best placed person. Jessica preempted my objection as to why should I help them do such a thing, something which Jessica correctly assumed I would be against. The decision is going to be made either way, said Jessica. Your input could save England. Or destroy it, of course. Can you tell me which side is winning right now? I asked hopefully, and Jessica shook her head. Look, Richard, I don't want to blackmail you into this decision. I want you to understand what it is we're trying to do. I want you to be on our side. The process will work better if you're an enthusiastic participant. But if you do this, you will be being incredibly useful. It will save your life. I tried to explain that I could never be on their side, but Jessica suggested we take a tour of the ship while she explained the work of the Honourable Society and I could mull over the decision. I reluctantly agreed. If nothing else, I wanted to get out of this room where they were actively planning the destruction of my country. First things first, the ship. It was called the Crucible and had been funded, designed and built by anonymous parties who believed in the work of the Honourable Society. I could already tell Jessica was very persuasive, and it was easy to imagine her convincing others to join her cause. The Crucible was the physical embodiment of the beliefs of the Honourable Society, useful and beautiful. It eventually cost four times the original budget, but Jessica considered this money well spent. While the Crucible was certainly odd, I had encountered dozens of odd vehicles. The apocalypse seemed to have unleashed a wave of unhinged engineers, building outrageous mode of transportation. Next, the unusual explosives that reduced even the toughest structure to powder. Jessica claimed that these had come from a central government authority weapons lab. A member of the Honourable Society buried deep within the CGA had managed to smuggle out the technology. They were not easy to make and exceedingly expensive, but perfect for the Honourable Society. It was like having a scalpel to remove exactly what you didn't want while leaving everything else intact. But really, these two things were just conveniences. Admittedly, very impressive conveniences. What really mattered was the system. How they determined what to destroy. There had been a time when they didn't have cool flying vehicles or cutting edge explosives, when they travelled anywhere that was possible and set art galleries on fire using petrol and matches. Then Jessica started to elaborate more on the Honourable Society. She hinted that there were thousands of members all over the world. 
those on board the Crucible were only the tip of the spear, the people who did the actual destroying. But in a thousand ways each day, their members advanced the agenda of the Honourable Society. I was convinced Jessica was overstating the size and scope of the organisation. After all, every secret society thinks they're the ones that really matter. They're the ones who are going to change the world. Jessica stopped outside one final door. There's something in here that you need to see, Richard, she said. She opened the door wide and led me in. It was a small room, painted in a sombre grey, and on the wall were two electronic counters. The first number, said Jessica, is the amount of money we have saved the central government authority since the founding of the Honourable Society. It was, undeniably, a very big number. The sort of number that was the sole preserve of powerful governments. I coughed to cover my surprise. I was about to speak when Jessica raised her hand to show she wasn't finished. And the second number is how many days before the CGA goes bankrupt. It was a lot of days. Thousands of days. But not so many thousands that it wasn't a concern to me. It's been a while since I've answered listener questions on air, so I thought I would dedicate some time for that this episode. There will be a common theme of these questions, that theme being me. As crazy as it may sound, some people are curious about my life. My long-standing policy has been not to answer such questions, partly to create a more mysterious persona and partly out of spite, but I've relented for this occasion. Question 1. Do you have a significant other? Or are you looking for one? Now, I've never talked about a wife or a husband or anything like that. Amongst the company I keep, few people are actually married. The old idea of long-term romantic relationships isn't very popular anymore. To say you have found your soulmate, the perfect person to be with, the one person for you. Well, for a generation that lost everything, that does rather sound like tempting fate. Question 2. What was your childhood like? I was very young when the apocalypse started. I had only just started school, and I don't have too many memories from that time. But what I do have suggests a happy, normal childhood. When the apocalypse started, my family fled south, and we were refugees passing from one place to another, so my formal education was essentially non-existent. When I was in Manchester, I attended a school of sorts, with other children, which was about as normal an educational experience as I would get in England, but it didn't last long. But to my parents, sight in the apocalypse was just an excuse not to do homework, and they taught me to read, write, and took any opportunity for me to learn something. When we found ourselves in an abandoned chalk factory, and my mother learned that the world-famous astrophysicist Dana Romero was, was also taking shelter there, my mother took me to her and demanded she teach me something. Over the next few days in that factory, I learned a lot about science. As the apocalypse grew worse and the last vestiges of government broke down, in the space of a year I was separated from both of my parents. First my father, then my mother. And I found myself tagging along with various groups of survivors. To this day, I do not know what happened to my parents. In these groups of survivors, sometimes I was barely tolerated, others welcomed openly. Not everyone was happy to be saddled with children, but we didn't have much time for education. Surviving was hard enough. Fortunately, I crossed the English Channel and found somewhere safe, well, safer, in continental Europe. There, I managed to have a structured education, which improved dramatically when the central government authority established a school system. That said, there are plenty of holes in my knowledge so I tried to learn more all the time. I managed to have as normal a childhood as could be expected, 
There were many other children in my position, no parents or family, children who were entirely alone. I made friends, and we were an international bunch of sorts, from all across Europe and beyond. I don't think I was always aware of just how much danger I was in as a child, something I normally am very aware of as an adult. How did you get into podcasts and slash apocalyptic travel writing? It was a complete accident. The first podcast I made was The 13 Colonies by Zeppelin. I had ended up getting a job working as a spotter on board the Zeppelin Hindsight. A spotter's job was just to look out for trouble. On a Zeppelin, most of the spotters are employed to search the skies looking for potential threats. But I was more focused on matters on board. I had to look out for anything that might suggest some kind of apocalyptic danger. Say, the remains of giant eggshells. Strange symbols written in blood. Passengers who only left their rooms once the sun had set. And so on. Like most spotters, I was rather cavalier in my approach to it. And essentially it meant you just helped out wherever you were needed. The idea of being a spotter would see every bit of the Zeppelin as they did a bit of every job. So I waited tables, moved luggage, helped passengers. But essentially I had a lot of free time and I needed something to do. So I decided to start a podcast about the 13 colonies. At that time, it was very hard to travel by car or train in North America. And the sea around the East Coast was swarming with kaiju. So Zeppelins were probably the best way to travel. The moment things took off for the podcast was when Hindsight stopped at Roanoke. It had been evacuated just three days before, and the destruction was immense. After that, the podcast took up more and more of my time. By the end of the trip, it was all I was doing on board. I used this experience, and very minor fame, to get other jobs in broadcasting, but never really found a place I wanted to work, and eventually ended up doing The Hitchhiker's Guide to Undead Europe. Wow, that feels like such a long time ago now. Jessica asked me what I thought would happen when the CGA ran out of money and stopped working. I didn't answer. I didn't need to. If the CGA collapsed, it would be the apocalypse all over again. The civilization they had rebuilt was fragile, and half of their energy just went into propping it up. Then Jessica told me that the figure... Then Jessica told me that this figure was without the added, added expense of trying to rebuild England, which undeniably would be very expensive. Of course, these were the figures the Honorable Society had come up with, and I had no idea how accurate they were. They could have made them up entirely. Jessica could sense my doubts. Look, Richard, even if you don't believe these numbers, the logic behind them is undeniable. The CGA will destroy itself trying to do too much. And I realised that even if this was true, I still completely and fundamentally disagreed with everything the Honourable Society were trying to do. They were monsters using twisted logic to justify killing people, and I was about to tell Jessica this when her phone rang. I could tell from the way her face fell that she had received some very bad news. I could only hear her side of the conversation, but it did give a lot away. Attacking us? How far away? Six of them. I'll come straight to the bridge. Jessica mumbled an apology and strode past me to deal with the looming crisis. I wasn't sure if I should follow her, but Mason nudged me forward. An alarm began to sound, and I had to struggle past crew members hurrying the other way, some carrying weapons. It should be noted that all these crew members were beautiful people, and even the alarm, while acting as an effective warning, was also quite pleasant to listen to. We reached the bridge where a handful of people were on the verge of panicking. Jessica was shouting orders into her phone. 
Suddenly she threw the phone down, swore, and then noticed me. He shouldn't be here, she snapped. Mason, why is he here? Jessica never got an answer, as Mason shot her. Irene standing just beside him and saw him draw his gun and fire five shots, hitting everyone else in the room, apart from me. Mason turned to face me, the gun still in his hand. You're welcome, he said, and pressed a business card into my hand. I looked at it. On one side was the ominous words, Wade Adler Company, England. And on the reverse, his name, Mason Veitch. I tried to ask why, but couldn't get the word out. Mason realised what I was trying to say. We can't have the Honourable Society damage in England. It belongs to us now. Mason walked over one of the consoles and his fingers flew over the controls. The ship lurched abruptly as it headed back to the ground. It wasn't a gentle landing, but the ship remained in one piece. Mason wasn't finished. A moment later, the power went out. Only pale red emergency lights remained. There. On the ground, doors open, power off. That'll make things easier, he said. I looked again at Mason's card and couldn't help but wonder if he'd been undercover with the Honourable Society for years, how did he already have business cards? I began to hear bursts of gunfire and screaming, and in a few minutes, soldiers burst into the bridge, dressed head to toe in black, not even their eyes were visible. The only identifying mark on them was the small, weird Adler Company logo on their arms. They saw Mason and lowered their weapons. The ship is secure, sir, barked one soldier. 34 crew members confirmed dead. Excellent, said Mason, and holstered his gun. I realised all the soldiers were staring at me. What about him? asked the soldier. Mason looked at me for a moment, presumably thinking about what to do with me. You said it yourself, Lieutenant. 34 confirmed dead, the entire crew. Besides, said Mason, putting his hand on my shoulder, he's English. We protect what's ours. I couldn't help but detect a small hint of disappointment in the soldiers when they learned they couldn't kill me. Richard, we're going to be destroying this ship and everything that's on board in about a minute. You might want to get out. What about Vasca? I have to get her, I said. Mason sighed loudly but agreed to give me an extra minute. I darted out of the bridge and thanks to the excellent design and clear signage I found the cells easily. I burst in expecting to find Vasca pacing the cell, ready to be rescued. Instead, I saw the cell door swing open as she had successfully picked the lock with a paperclip. I tried to explain the situation but she wasn't interested and somehow seemed to have grasped just about everything that was going on. The Honourable Society may have been wrong on most things, but they were right about Vasca. She was extremely useful. We made it off the ship and I stopped to look at the black helicopters and the weird Adler Company soldiers, but Vasca came back to me to remind me I should be running. Well, I'll leave it there for this week. I'll just add that we made it back to the train without incident, and when we explained that a large number of Wade Adler Company soldiers were in the area, we quickly left. At the end of the line was written, performed and produced by Richard Oliver. Victoria Dumendorf worked on editing the audio to make the whole show sound better. Find Victoria on Twitter at Tyranatory, T-Y-R-A-N-A-T-O-R-Y. Our theme music is by Chip Michael. Find more of his music at soundcloud.com forward slash Chip Michael. Chip is also part of the Tales of Sage and Savant podcast, which I highly recommend. In this week's episode, Dr. Bernadette Juncker was played by the talented Alma Spar. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter at PostAPOC Podcast. Anyone wanting to submit questions, ask for advice, or make urgent pleas for help, 
should tweet us or send an email to at the end of the line podcast at gmail.com. For more information on the show, please visit our website at the end of the line podcast dot squarespace dot com.